0: Today's scripture comes from the book of Psalms, chapter 25. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring, sorry, excuse me. heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble, and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes, and with what violent hatred they hate me. O oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O oh God, out of all his troubles. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: I'm really glad to uh, be invited to the pulpit again today. I want to preach on the topic of guidance. How do we decide what to do with our lives? How do we choose to go in one direction or another? I believe that this is one of the defining questions of our generation. Because there's never been a generation like ours faced with overwhelming array of choices and options because unlike previous generations we can choose any career who to marry where to live how many kids we want right so many choices but along with those choices is a cost and the cost is deep anxiety because now the pressure is on how do we choose well how do we make these critical life-determining life-shaping decisions and so there's never been a generation as anxious about the future as as paralyzed by indecision i think um this is really perfectly captured in a netflix uh, tv show called master of none it was um it was a lot of buzz uh, a couple of years ago and um the main character is played by um aziz ansari who Is this sort of hipster millennial? He lives in New York City. He's 30 years old. He's uh, trying to figure out his uh, life, career, and relationships. And there's this really poignant scene where he's facing this crisis. His career is going sideways, it doesn't seem to be going anywhere. He gets into this huge fight with his girlfriend about whether they should get married or not. And Feeling dejected and lost, he steps out of his apartment and he decides to wander the streets of New York City. And he happens to walk into this bookstore and as he's perusing the aisles, he picks up this book, it's a very iconic book called The Bell Jar by Sylvia Platt. And his eyes fall on this passage, which I'm gonna read for you. It's a really, I think, evocative passage. It it captures his predicament well. It says, I saw my life branching out before me like the green fig tree in the story. From the tip of every branch, like a fat purple fig, a wonderful future beckoned and winked. One fig was a husband and a happy home and children, and another fig was a famous poet And another fig was a brilliant professor. And another fig was Europe and Africa and South America. And another fig was Constantine and Socrates and Attila and a pack of other lovers with queer names and offbeat professions. And beyond and above these figs were many more figs I couldn't quite make out. I saw myself sitting in the crotch of this fig tree, starving to death, just because I couldn't make up my mind which of the figs I would choose. I wanted each and every one of them, but choosing one meant losing all the rest. And as I sat there, unable to decide, the figs began to wrinkle and go black. And one by one, they plopped to the ground at my feet." And so feeling um, confused and disturbed by this, he puts the book down, He doesn't know what to do. He's afraid of making the wrong decision. He goes back to his apartment, and um, later that day, there's a knock at the door, and it's his girlfriend. She has dramatically changed her appearance, her hair color is different, and she announces that the fight has given her this clarity of vision that she has never experienced the world. And so she's going to move to Tokyo, and she's come to say goodbye. And uh, Aziz Ansari is stunned by this. He closes the door, and then in that moment, he decides for himself, he's gonna quit his job, he's gonna move to Italy, and he's gonna learn to make pasta. And that's how the episode ends, right? It ends on this sort of cliffhanger for the next season. And I think that scene perfectly encapsulates the spirit of of our culture because our culture tells us we are free to make any choice that we want, but we're lost and confused. We're hungry for guidance, but we don't know where to find it. But we have the Bible. And we're gonna look at Psalm 25. Psalm 25 is written by David, and in this Psalm you can see that he's in some kind of predicament, some kind of deep trouble, and he's crying out to God for help. He's full of distress and anxiety, and he's asking God for guidance. He says, teach me, guide me, lead me in the right path. And you can see that the whole main thrust of the Psalm is this middle passage, middle section, verses four through 10, where he's saying, Lord, what should I do? He's praying for guidance. And so we're gonna study this Psalm. We're going to read this ancient Hebrew prayer on divine guidance, and then let's listen to its wisdom and instruction. And so I have four points. This is the outline. These are the steps to guidance. Number one, you have to doubt yourself. Number two, you have to trust God. Number three, you have to be transformed. And then number four, you have to accept the friendship of God. Doubt yourself, trust God, be transformed, accept the friendship of God. So let's begin. Number one, doubt yourself. This sounds really strange to modern ears because our culture tells us, trust your instincts, listen to your feelings, and then you'll know what to do. But the Bible starts in a very different place. It says, distrust your instincts, doubt your feelings, because the guidance that God provides starts with humility. In verse nine, it says, he leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. So that humility is the beginning of wisdom because humility recognizes the vastness of what you don't know. How are you gonna make a good decision if you don't even know what you don't even know? Um, One of my favorite concepts in psychology is called the Dunning-Kruger effect. I don't know if you've heard of this. It's coined by these two professors, and it describes uh, a cognitive bias. And the Dunning-Kruger effect is basically that if you are incompetent at a skill, like if you're really, really bad at it, you also lack the judgment to know how bad you're at it. And the worse your skill level is, the more delusional your self-assessment will be. And this has been found to be true across all skill sets in every category, whether it is singing, telling jokes, computer coding, uh, listening skills. The worst performers are the most blind to their own incompetence. I love this concept uh, because It explains this um, culture shift that we've been going through for the past several decades, this culture of hyper-self-confidence. And I wanted to share with you um, some statistics. Americans rank 25th in the world in math scores, okay? So 25th. But if you go around the world asking, are you really good at math? Americans rank number one in people who think they're really good at math. (laughs) Time magazine did a survey, and uh, in one of the questions, it said, um, are you in the top 1% of income earners? According to the survey, 19% of Americans are in the top 1%. Our culture encourages this. Self-promotion, self-confidence fake it till you make it, right? But this kind of egotism blinds us to our worst faults. And actually, I want you to know our problem goes even deeper than this. If you look at that verse, right, it says, he leads the humble, that's verse 9. The verse right um, before it, verse 8, it says, he instructs sinners in the way. What is this telling us? It's telling us that our greatest problem isn't ignorance. It isn't incompetence. Our greatest problem is rebellion against God. Our greatest problem is sin. And if our greatest problem is sin, then whenever we face a decision, we should assume that we are being driven by selfish and evil desires that will lead us astray. And therefore, the fundamental question isn't, how do I get what I want? That is the wrong question. The right question is, is what I want good and upright? Is what I want even a good thing? And therefore, what this Psalm is telling us is that the beginning of guidance is repentance. It is a posture of self suspicion and self doubt. Proverbs 3 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Do not be wise in your own eyes. And so, do you want to be guided by God? Start with this prayer Lord, I don't know what to do, and I don't even know what I should want to do. Help me. Guide me. That was David's prayer. The second point is trust God, and the second point here I think wonderfully balances the first point. The first point is doubt yourself. Don't be so cocksure. The second point is utterly trust God. In verse 10, it says, all the paths of the Lord Are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness, meaning there are many paths, plural. There isn't just one path, and they all belong to God, and they're all covered in his faithfulness. And so, what is this saying? This is saying, ultimately, please listen, whatever you choose to do, whatever you choose to do, it'll be within God's loving purposes for your life because you cannot thwart the will of God. You cannot screw up God's plan for you. Romans 8.28 says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. I want you to know that if you give your life to Christ, you cannot mess up your life. Nothing can ruin your life, not even you. And therefore, hear me now, there are no mistakes in your life. No mistakes. Now, that doesn't mean you can't make stupid, foolish decisions, like straight-up sinful decisions. But what it does mean is that when you do, it'll be within God's plan. It'll be part of God's plan. And because He loves you, He will let you suffer some of the consequences. Because sometimes, oftentimes, the best thing for your maturity and growth is that you make a really awful, terrible decision and then you suffer the consequences of it and then you learn from that experience. But you cannot ruin your life. And when you understand this, I want you to know it will give you such incredible peace. It'll give you deep peace because even your dumb mistakes will be part of God's wise and loving plan. And therefore, relax. Should you take this job or that? Should you marry this person or not? Don't be paralyzed. Pray for guidance. Be humble about yourself. Immerse yourself in the word. But in the end, just make a decision. Because It'll be okay. God is in control. Don't be weighed down by second guessing. Don't think about the road not taken. Don't say to yourself, oh no, I have married the wrong person. Because think about that. If you married the wrong person, that means you're having the wrong kids. If you've had the wrong kids, you've ruined their life forever because you're the wrong parent. Of course not. All the paths, all the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. I wanna um, share an example uh, from my own life. Um, One of the things that uh, Christina, my wife and I, uh, always laugh about is how we met, just the uh, improbabilities of it all. Um, When I was a senior in college, um, I started uh, a ministry I called Contact Evangelism. And uh, my vision was that uh, we were gonna go out during lunchtime and then tell students about the gospel. So I went out to all these different campus ministries, you know, AACF, InterVarsity, Crew, uh, like a dozen ministries, and I gave them my enthusiastic pitch. And then at the appointed time, we were supposed to meet uh, Friday at noon at Sproul Plaza We were supposed to meet at the fountain. Nobody showed up. And uh, I waited there for 30 minutes, feeling pretty down on myself. And I was about to leave when a friend of mine happened to walk by and I got all excited because I thought he was coming to do evangelism with me. He was just walking home. (laughs) But um, we got to talking, right? And then at 12... 40 p.m., I kid you not, this girl comes running up to the fountain, completely out of breath, saying, Am I too late? I'm here for the evangelism. That was Christina. And uh, so we went out to go do evangelism, and uh, we, you know, we were talking, and uh, I just became completely smitten by her. Um, I asked her, uh, you know, that sort of standard question when you meet somebody in college. What are you studying? And she said, I'm studying philosophy. I said, oh, that's a really interesting, (laughs) not many people major in philosophy. Why are you studying philosophy? And um, she said, I'll never forget her answer. She said, I'm studying philosophy because philosophy is the search for the truth. And I wanna know the truth because I wanna tell people about Jesus. That's what she said. And I remember thinking, that is the sexiest thing I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> and I just felt completely in love with her. And uh, we, uh, after the evangelism, we went to the bear's lair to debrief. And uh, you know, I, I did everything I could to figure out Excuses and reasons to hang out with her. Um, We we went like uh, she expressed interest in a book, so we went to the library together. Um, There was a Veritas Forum at the time with John Stott speaking, so we went to that uh, that talk together. And then uh, a month later, we were dating, and a couple of years later, we got married. We've been married now for twenty years. Actually, uh, this August will be our twentieth anniversary. But here's the thing, okay? Here's the thing. I want you to know that that whole meeting was just so improbable. The fact that Christina came 40 minutes late. I mean, who has the gall to do such a thing? (laughs) The fact that I waited... The fact that my friend just happened to walk by to delay me long enough to meet Christina. And the fact that she was the only one who came because a month later there was like 20 people in the ministry and so I would have never gotten a chance to meet her like that. So we had all of these obstacles and then on top of that actually we discovered that we had already previously met a year earlier. Through a mutual friend, and I remember this because um, I could sort of tell that my friend was trying to set us up. He said, Michael, <laughs> there's this girl at my church, my home church. She's really into theology. You should meet her. And, you know, at the time, I was like completely focused on going to seminary, so I didn't want the distraction of, of dating and marriage. I, I don't know why I thought these two things were incompatible. And so, when I actually met Christina, I didn't even look at her. I just sort of gave her my hand and said, hi. (laughs) And because I didn't want to get married. And Christina, for her part, thought, what a jerk. What if that meeting was my only chance? and I blew it. But you see there's no such thing because God was orchestrating everything behind the scenes. And I don't know, I suppose that if I had messed up that second meeting as well, <laughs> there was there would have been a third meeting. I don't know, maybe we would have met in seminary or met, you know, in some other context. Some of you are thinking, how do you know that it was the will of God that you and Christina get married? And I know it was the will of God because Christina and I are married, okay? And I want you to know that being married to Christina is the greatest gift of my life. She is the most wonderful life partner that I could possibly imagine. And so I want you to know, everyone in this room, you cannot mess up your life. You can't. We can look at so many other examples you know, in the Bible. You can look at the life of Moses or David or Jacob. So many different people. If you read their accounts, they're just stumbling through life blind, with blind foolishness, making terrible decisions left and right, and God blesses them anyway. You see, you think you're in control. You think you're the one calling the shots. But ultimately, God is in control. Proverbs 16, verse nine. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. God is the author of our lives. He is the one writing our story. And therefore, be at peace make the best decision you can, ask for counsel from others, pray like mad, but through it all, trust God. You're exactly where you're supposed to be. The third point is be transformed. So ultimately, guidance is about transformation. Because when God guides you, he's going to change you. He's going to change what you want, and ultimately, he's going to change you. In verse 4, it says, Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Notice that it's your path, not my own path, but it's God's path. So what is David asking for? He's not saying, God... Help me to get what I want. He's saying, Lord, help me to want what you want. Do you see the difference? I want you to know that it is possible to spend your whole life on the wrong path. It is possible to spend your whole life on the wrong path. So all along, you're praying for this, you're praying for that, but you are asking for the wrong things. And so how do you get on the right path? Verse 5, David writes, lead me in your truth and teach me. Now, when David says your truth, he is talking about the word of God. He's saying you must read the Bible. Now, I know for a great many of you, this is a disappointing answer because you're faced with this difficult decision. Right? Some of you right now, you're facing this, this critical juncture in your life and you're trying to decide what to do and you're thinking you want me to read the Bible how is that going to help me but don't you see we need the Bible because so often our desires and our goals are not shaped by God but by the world Proverbs chapter 2 Chapter 12, verse 2, says this. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing, listen, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and true. Listen, it is so easy to be conformed to the patterns of this world. It is so easy to be seduced by the American dream of prosperity and comfort. One of the most challenging uh, sermons that I've ever heard is by uh, John Piper called Don't Waste Your Life. And I heard it a couple of years after college, and it rocked my world. In this sermon, he, he says that there are so many people who are just living for retirement. They can't wait to finally quit their jobs, and then they're going to collect seashells by the beach. And Piper says, if that's all there is, if that's what your life is all about, what a waste that is. And I want to read you this quote, and I'm really doing the quote injustice, because if you've ever heard John Piper preach, you know how passionate and earnest he is. And so try to listen with his voice and mind. This is what he says. So I ask all of you tonight, are you going to throw your life away? Are you going to buy into the American dream, minimize suffering, maximize comforts and ease, build bigger barns, lay up treasures on earth, covet the praise of man, be happy for 80 years is that the way you're going to waste your life? Or are you going to see Christ crucified and risen and reigning and bearing your sins as the infinite treasure in your life and then make life choices that display to the world his value? And so John Piper is, is saying what the Bible is teaching us, which is that our natural inclinations, our natural inclinations will lead us to a decadent and self-serving life, a small life of small pleasures, a safe life without any need for courage or the grace of God. But the Bible calls us to a big life a life full of risk and adventure, a life of passion and obedience to the cause of Christ in this dying world, will you heed that call? Will you submit your life to him? Verse 12 says, who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. Fear God above all else, and then you will become a person guided by God. The last point is accept the friendship of God. Verse 14, it says, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. And so the imagery of friendship here is of two friends walking side by side, deep in conversation, just pouring out and sharing their hearts and mind with each other. Why does David talk about friendship with God? What does friendship have to do with guidance? And the answer is that what we ultimately need is not guidance per se, but a guide. Not, you know, step-by-step instructions so that, you know, if God were to say to you, Tomorrow, I want you to go to this coffee shop at this exact hour. I want you to go up to the guy on your left. He'll be wearing a blue T-shirt. I want you to sit down next to him, and I want you to say these exact words, which will start a conversation. And he is your future husband. Some of you are probably thinking, Yes, exactly. That's the kind of guidance I want. (laughs) No, you don't. No, you don't. Let me explain through an illustration. Suppose that you're the parent of a teenager. I know many of you in this room are. And suppose that your child is about to start high school. Now, you know that in high school, he's going to be faced with all kinds of choices and decisions, some of those decisions will be life-determining decisions. Now, you can try to sort of spell out every possibility, sort of map out all kinds of different scenarios and then sort of script out for him how he's going to answer, what he's going to do so that everywhere he goes, he has to carry around this giant manual. Or the better way actually the only way is if you can implant into his heart your own heart and values, and then you will know that whatever situation he he might find himself in, he will make the right decision. That is the guidance that God offers to you. He says, accept my friendship because I want you to know my heart and mind. I'm not going to give you step-by-step instructions, but I want to walk with you. I want a relationship with you. Now, how do we get the friendship of the Lord? Listen to what Jesus says in John 15, 13. He says, greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. The friendship of God in Christ is his sacrificial death for you. It's him dying for you. It's him saving you on the cross. And when you receive that, when you believe in that, when you meditate on that, it will transform you. I want to close with um, this final thought. People will often ask how much Can I trust my own um, intuitions and feelings when I'm faced with a decision? John 15 verse seven says this, listen. Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. To the degree, that you abide in Christ, where your thoughts and desires are being shaped by him. To that degree, to that degree, you can begin to trust your inclinations and feelings. Because the guidance of God is ultimately not about doing, it's about being. It's about being a Christ-soaked person we knows the friendship of the Lord. So I started with a Sylvia Platt quote about the fig tree um, and about the uncertainty and the anxieties of the modern age. I would like to close with a quote from Kevin DeYoung from his book, Just Do Something, which is a, an excellent book on guidance. And uh, this is the conclusion of his book. Listen. The will of God isn't a special direction here or a bit of secret knowledge there. God doesn't put us in a maze, turn out the lights and tell us, get out and good luck. In one sense, we trust in the will of God as a sovereign plan for our future. In another sense, we obey the will of God as his good word for our lives. In no sense should we be scrambling around trying to turn to the right page in our own personal choose-your-own-adventure novel. So the end of the matter is this. Live for God. Obey the scriptures. Think of others before yourself. Be holy. Love Jesus. And as you do these things, do whatever else you like, with whomever you like, wherever you like, and you will be walking in the will of God. These are wise words. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that by our own devices, by our own uh, ingenuity and human wisdom, we are completely lost. We are wandering around aimlessly without a direction. But we give you thanks and praise for the light of Jesus Christ. Thank you for his sacrificial death. Thank you for his spirit that so fills us so that we have Christ in us. And we know that Christ in us is the guidance that we need to live a life that is pleasing to you, that gives you glory and honor, and will give us a full, big life full of meaning and purpose. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.